speak their Hindu, whatever languages, there are in the structure of language so many these hierarchical distinctions, scribe, how do you address someone, and so on, that the only language of equality that you get is English. And I think also great writers, okay, more Beckett than Royce, experience this to be, I claim, against a certain misreading of Martin Heidegger, you know, authentic, you must listen to your prophet, to blah, 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 that on the contrary, the truly great writers knew that you precisely to confront your country, your Muttersprache, your original and authentically, you must somehow betray it. I think one should write a doctor's thesis on why Beckett, to become Beckett, had to move from English to French, and so on. It's absolutely crucial. I always think that the best thing for a writer, at least today, is to write in a, in a French prague, in a foreign language. But I don't want to talk too much because I'm basically eating my own time, you know. So <laughs> I hope we don't be too bored. There will be some things that I mentioned already in my texts, but I write too much. Probably whatever I say, it is already somewhere in my books. You just have to suffer. So let's begin. I'm sorry for these problems. It's very humiliating. Maybe I will even have to. Uh, put artificial tears to appear more sincere. <laughs> okay. In a theater piece that I wrote a couple of years ago, and that I'm proud to say it will be now staged here or rather in German speaking Belgium, uh, I retold Antigone in the mode of Bertolt Brecht's three Lehrstücke, learning place, Jasager, Neinsager, Jasager 2. And the crucial point of decision within the play, events take three different directions. A procedure later used in, at least I know of two films, there are probably more, Kislovsky's Blind Chance and Tom Dickwer's Lola Red, Ram Lola Ram. My premise is that such a staging confronts us with a true Antigone for our times, and, and, he, and that we should, in such a staging, ruthlessly abandon our sympathy and compassion for Antigone, making her part of the problem. And we should invent a way out which shatters us in our humanitarian complacency. Such a procedure doesn't amount to a simple relativization, but has to be read against a platonic background. Kishlovsky's Blind Chance from 1981 deals, I really advise you to see the film, it's incredible, the best Kishlovsky, freedom ruined him. The moment he went to the West with double life of Veronique and so on, he was lost. Uh, uh, deals with three different outcomes of a man running on the platform to catch a train. First, he catches the train and becomes a communist apparatchik. Second version, he misses the train and because 
uh, uh, he by accident hits a policeman on the train platform, he becomes a dissident. Third version, there is no train, and he settles down to a mundane life, becomes an apolitical doctor, and so on. Uh, this notion of a mere chance, which can determine the outcome of our life, was unacceptable, so my friends in Poland told me, to communist as well as to dissident opposition. The opponents, Solidarność, or more conservative opposition, hated the film because, you know, it deprived them of their dignity. Like, do you mean that it's just because of a chance that somebody becomes dissident and not an apparatchik and so on and so on? The point is that in each of the three cases, the contingency which gives the spin to the hero's life uh, would be repressed. The hero would construct his life story as a narrative leading to its final result. That is to say, once the contingent spin takes place, we tend automatically to reconstruct it as a necessity. And I think this is, I don't have time to go into it today, this is one of the mysteries of dialectics of Hegelian, Hegel's dialectics. It's not really a necessary dialectical progress, but it's a contingency which retroactively grounds its own necessity. For example, you know there is, I think it's in uh, Thousand and One Night, Arabian Night, this wonderful uh, small uh, accident, how a guy, first uh, the half-dying, wanders around the desert, and enters a cave. And then three old men who were sleeping awaken and said, oh, we were waiting for 300 years for you to come, you are finally here, and so on. That's how Kegelian dialectics uh, progresses. It's not necessity. It's nece necessity emerges in a contingent way. Once the thing happens, it retroactively creates its own conditions and becomes necessary. This is what Lacan, Jacques Lacan, referred to as the future interior of the unconscious, which will have been. While blind, blind chance is full of direct political references, they are nonetheless clearly subordinated to the metaphysical vision of the meaningless chances which determine the outcome of our lives. However, the point of the film is not simply how our life depends on pure chance. One should also bear in mind how in all three alternate universes, as an apparatchik, dissident, a political doctor, Vitek the hero, basically remains the same decent, considerate person who tries not to hurt others. We can thus read the film also as three, and I use this term now in strict Husserlian, Husserl's phenomenology. I think, incidentally, some of you are philosophers, it's very sad that in the big shadow of Heidegger, uh, Husserl is now practically forgotten. I think that 
we Husserl, Edmund Husserl's phenomenology needs more of our attention. So, we have three eidetic variations that enable us to extract, I would say, with all platonic meaning, the eternal idea of Videk, which remains the same in all possible universes. Idea has to be understood here in a very specific way, not in its usual sense of a platonic abstraction, the abstract concept of a table in contrast to individual tables, but more in the sense of what Deleuze calls transcendental empiricism, the thick web of virtual variations which surround the reality of a field. <coughs> With regard to this dense transcendental field, reality is the result of its reduction to one version like the collapse of a uh, wave function in quantum physics. You see, although I'm not a Deleuzean, here Deleuze did have an ingenious insight. His transcendental dimension is not like Kant's the abstraction, like time-space concepts, pure abstract conditions of possibility, but the transcendental dimension is much richer than reality. It's not abstract conceptual structure of reality, but it's the entire scope of variations of possibilities. And, of course, Deleuze's great thesis, which is, I think, also, but that's another story, deeply Hegelian, is that, uh, is that uh, to understand a situation, you must read... Sorry, something wrong here? Oh, no, sorry. Oh, no, but I sweat in any way, then it's very hard. <laughs> it doesn't check. Uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, to understand a thing, what really happens, you, we are not historicists. It's not that you have to understand uh, the historical conditions. No, you have to understand the entire panoply scope of what might have happened but didn't. Uh, but didn't uh, care. It is in this sense that, as already Hegel put it, a good portrait of a person resembles more the person than the person itself, himself or herself. A good painting of a woman, sorry to give this slightly sexist example, supplements the woman's photographic reality with its transcendental field of virtualities. All the layers of potentialities that underlie the actual existence of a woman, the potential aggressiveness or the threat of libidinal explosion that may lurk beneath her gentle appearance, her vulnerability and exposure to male violence, the melancholy that often brands the existence of a woman, up to the disparity of the composure of the feminine body, which may all of a sudden strike an external gaze. All these virtualities, which in a painting are directly inscribed into the feminine figure and distort its realist shape, are not just subjective misperceptions of objective reality of the body. They bring out potentialities inscribed into the thing itself. 
Now, I'm ashamed of this, it's such a simple example, but I want to be elementary, up, up, look there, it's Picasso's from 1931, a woman throwing a stone. The distorted fragments of a woman on a beach throwing a stone are, of course, a grotesque misrepresentation, if measured by the standard of realist reproduction. However, in their very plastic distortion, they immediately, in some sense even intuitively, render the idea of a woman drawing a stone the inner gehaz, inner form of such a figure. Upon a closer look, you can easily discern the steps of the process of eidetic reduction of the woman to her essential features, hand, stone, breasts, head. This painting thinks, it thinks, it performs the violent process of tearing apart elements which in their natural state coexist in reality. They do this in exactly the sense in which Hegel characterizes the infinite power of understanding. A quote from introduction to uh, 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 Hegel's Phenomenologie des Geistes. The action of separating the elements is the exercise of the force of Verstand, understanding, the most astonishing and greatest of all powers, or rather the absolute power. So, you see my point. What Picasso was doing, and I don't, incidentally, I don't even especially like Picasso. I much prefer Braque and so on, but it's a good example of this. This is painting as thinking, this brutal distortion of reality, which precisely in distorting reality brings out the, and I use very naively here the platonic term idea, brings out the idea of a woman throwing a stone. Aristotle was thus wrong in his critique of Plato's theory of art as mimesis. Mimesis is the mimesis of the idea of the object, not of the object itself. And in order to get this idea to appear, one has to distort brutally the object's immediate reality. In a materialist reading of Plato, one can even say that the idea itself comes to be through such a distortion of reality. Now I will give you another example, if you have more popular tastes, uh, which brings out the ontology implied in this idea of Platonic materialism. Uh, there is a TV series recently going on, which is not so good, neither so bad, but I like the novel, Philip Dick's The Man in the High Castle. You know what it is, no? It's one of the big science fiction classics. Uh, an alternate history. Uh, it takes place in 1962, 15 years after an alternate ending of the World War II happened, in which, in this alternate reality, World War II lasted till 1947, when the victorious ex 
Axis powers, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, rule over the former United States. The novel features a novel within the novel. Within the novel, there is a mysterious man in the high castle, a writer, who describes something that appears like our real reality, an alternate world where allies, United States, Russia, won World War II, and everybody laughs at him, like, how can he be so great? But uh, we can, of course, treat this double reversal as a dark allegory of our own time, in which, although fascism was defeated in reality, it is more and more triumphing in fantasy. However, such a reading neglects the fact that the alternate reality described in the novel within the novel, within the novel, again, which takes place in the world of German victory, but within the novel, a novel circulates in which allies won. But, and I refer here to a guy to whom I will brutally, ironically refer to as a guy who certainly has enough time to read novels and think about this. It's my good friend, I'm proud to say, Julian Assange, who is now, please, try to do something. Totally isolated, getting desperate, no phone contact. He cannot even get visitors. Only lawyers can visit him from time to time only, uh, and so on. So he told me that when he read the novel, and especially when he watched the TV series, he discovered that uh, uh, the reality described in this fiction within the fiction, where allies won, is not simply our reality, where allies won. There are subtle differences. So, talking with him, and again, cynically, he has no time to talk, uh, uh, talking with him, we came to the idea then that it's crucial to read this novel within the novel, not as an ironic depiction of the real world, but again, as a kind of a platonic point of reference. The underlying idea is that we have our reality, we have the alternate reality of the victory of the Axis, or whatever, and then we have a third reality, which is the central point of reference, which is the basic matrix out of which we have to... Uh, uh, we only can understand our reality. So, again, I'm back at this idea that to understand the essence or platonic idea of our reality, one has to construct alternate realities and then out of them abstract a kind of the idea of all possible realities. And now, if you suffer through this, now we slowly go into more popular area. And this is how, why I think, although they are extremely boring, I cannot play them, but uh, uh, this is why video games have a certain theoretical interest. They directly materialize such a structure of multiple virtual realities. The universe of video games not only regulates the gamer's desire, it also interpolates the gamer 
into a specific mode of subjectivity. What I mean by this is when you are deeply immersed in a video game, which is the type of subjectivity that you conform to when you act in a video game? I claim it's a pre-edible, not yet castrated subjectivity that floats in a kind of obscene immortality. When I'm immersed into a video game, I dwell in a universe of undeadness, where no annihilation is definitive, since, after every destruction, I can return to the beginning and start the game again. Uh, this is what I often describe in my work, you know. It's interesting how, although they appear something so new, but I hope you notice this, that video games are just a technically more developed version of what we find already half a century ago in cartoons. You know, it's exactly the logic of Tom and Jerry. You know, in one scene, Tom or Jerry is, I don't know, sliced into tiny pieces, run over by a truck. No problem. In next scene is the obscene undeadness. You go on. You know who was the first as Jacques Lacan developed so nicely in his classic text, Kant avec Sade? with Sabe, is the universe of Marquis de Sade, where the victim has the same undeadness. Just read, if you can, I cannot, it's too boring, uh, 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 yet. The victim is, is tortured again and again in all possible ways, but somehow, magically, uh, she, because it's a woman in the novel, retains all her beauty. She is again and again here, incidentally, sorry for this short, vulgar detour, the same goes for hardcore pornography. <laughs> Did you notice that after the orgasm, you see the orgasm and so on, uh, they never use Kleenexes or whatever <laughs> to wipe the sperms. They simply go on. <laughs> and they can do it again and again. It's the same undead universe. The further philosophical implications of this undeadness are crucial for understanding our wrongly so-called post-Hegelian universe. Warning here, stealing begins. I mean, my two colleagues with whom I'm proud to be associated, they may not be proud, but I am. <laughs> Here, you know, in a just universe, but we don't live in a just universe, good for me. Somebody <laughs> stand behind me and say, warning, he is now plagiarizing blood and dollar. Okay. <laughs> One of the determinations of modernity is that in it, a specific form of negation of negation arises. Alenka also developed this. Far from the triumphant reversal of negativity into a new positivity, here the negation of negation means that even negation, our striving to reach the bottom, the zero point, fails. Not only are we not immortal, but we are even not mortal. We fail in that endeavor to disappear. We survive in the guise of the obscene immortality of the undead, living dead. So, not only do we fail in our pursuit of happiness, we even fail in our pursuit of unhappiness. Our attempts to ruin our life produce small unexpected 
bits of miserable happiness. In social life, not only do most of us fail to achieve social success and slowly approach that point admired so much by Marxists of being becoming pure proletarian. Those who don't have even, who only have their chance to lose. No, we may try this, but we never get there, you know. You have a small house, you have a rich uncle, whatever. <laughs> you never get there. Uh, 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 perhaps therein resides a very vicious political remark that the deadlock of today's Western radical leftists who, disappointed at the lack of true proletariat in their own country, desperately search for an ersatz proletariat, which will mobilize itself as a revolutionary agent instead of our corrupt inert working class who likes to uh, acquire, uh, acquire a house, an apartment, just don't be pure uh, proletarian. The most popular candidate is recently nomadic immigrants. Yes. That's why, for these totally hypocritical reasons, leftists like them. As a friend of mine, I will not name him, name him, he's still a pure friend of mine, but I think from Finland, my friend. He really regressed into this pure regression. He wrote me, at least now immigrants, they are homeless, they are proletariats, we need them in Europe, they will be this Marxist pure negativity, only Chinese not having anything to lose, and so on and so on. Uh, in this weird negation of negation, is it really what escaped Hegel? I don't think so. I think that this downward negation of negation, where you fail, but then the negation of negation is not you fail, but secretly this failure is a triumph. No. You fail, but you cannot even really fail. Uh, is uh, maybe one of the secrets of Hegelian dialectical process. Maybe this is how we should reread Hegel backwards from the perspective plagiarizing Mladen now of Samuel Beckett's late short text and place, which all deal precisely with the Hegelian problem of how to go on when the game is over, when the game reaches its end point. Hegel is not simply the thinker of final closure, absolute knowing, we know everything, but much more a figure of this uncanny openness. It's not this Marxist progressive openness. We are at the crucial point, there is a chance of revolution, will we make it or not? No, it's rather... Uh, it already had the concept exhausted its elements. With Hegel, you never have images of the future. For Hegel, future is so open that you cannot even afford uh, images of any imaginations of the future. Let me go on. But what if the choice between finitude and immortality is false? What if finitude and immortality form a kind of a parallax couple? What if they are the same from a different point of view? 
What is immortality is an object that is a remainder or excess over finitude. What if finitude is an attempt to escape the excess of immortality? I think Kierkegaard was right here, but for the wrong reason. When he understood the claim that we humans are just mortal beings who disappear after their biological death as an easy way to escape the ethical responsibility that comes with the immortal soul. Kierkegaard was right for the wrong reason, insofar as he equated immortality with the divine and ethical part of a human being. But there is another immortality, what Cantor did for infinity, we should do for immortality, and assert the multiplicity of immortalities. Maybe the most basic immortality is not this noble immortality, oh, I did a great thing, I will survive my death, but more that desperate immortality. I hope that I will just disappear after death. I cannot even disappear. I cannot even die. This is, I think, uh, uh, what we are dealing with in video games is the same obscene immortality. You return again and again. And, okay, this is a more philosophical point, I don't have time to develop it now. This, I think, is also what, uh, what uh, uh, Freud called death drive. It's a beautiful paradox. Death drive is Freud's name for immortality. Death drive is not this, who my soul survives. Death drive is, the, is an obscenity in classical literature. Who is undead? Hamlet's father. Why? Because of his crimes. He cannot even disappear properly. He has to return like a ghost and so on and so on. If you allow me another plagiarizing, this time from myself, <laughs> I use this in my book, uh, uh, Kant was the first who philosophically discovered this obscene immortality, I claim, with his wonderful distinction between a negative and infinite judgment. A negative judgment negates a predicate. An infinite judgment asserts a non-predicate. Now you will say, what the fuck am I talking? Isn't it the same? No, it's not. And I'll give you an example from Stephen King. Somebody is dead. Okay, we negate a predicate. He is not dead. No problem, he is alive. But let's now assert a non-predicate. If I say, he is undead, it's not the same as he isn't dead. He is undead means precisely that a third domain opens up, neither dead nor alive. All those beautiful creatures, living dead, uh, undead, vampires, whatever you want. Uh, this obscenity uh, is so interesting. Now, my last plagiarism here, uh, this undead are, as Mladen, I don't know if you will do this here tomorrow in your reading of Oedipus and Columbus, Mladen, then I draw attention to his text, it will appear somewhere, it's also undead, his text, sooner or later, gave the best justification that I know of for uh, abortion rights. You know, 
Eric Musset Colonos read the chorus, says that famous line, uh, the greatest luck is not to be born at all. I think that feminists who advocate abortion should refer to this line, like, we are just trying to do this, uh, not being born at all. So, uh, Okay, my point would have been that we should do the same, a variation that I use there. Our normal state is to be living dead. We are all in this half-born state. Now, let's go further. But am I not describing here a mere fantasy? You can say, okay, but this undeadness that I'm describing is just a fantasy. A fantasy image, but in reality we are mortal beings, and so on and so on. So it's not as simple as that. Because I think that first, uh, uh, if we go back at video games, they don't just structure our virtual fantasy universe where you move in a video game. They structure our reality itself. For example, I read recently a good analysis of uh, erotic lives today, games of seduction, where they claim that many people, men and women, behave in real life in the same way. You try it with one girl or boy, it doesn't work, you go back to the beginning, you try again, and so on and so on. That is to say, you can also live your real life as a video game. Just it's as if you can return to the zero point and again and again uh, uh, start from the zero point, as it were. This intermingling of reality and fantasy structures our sexuality, which precisely is never immediate. What does this mean? Uh, this means that, and we should go to the end in this idea, that uh, in sex, this structure of virtuality, variations, and so on, means that we are never alone with our partners. Ultimately, the couple is never alone in sex. There is always a third moment implied, even if it is just an, the imagined gaze of a witness. So, what is this gaze? Now comes a trigger warning if you are politically correct. Now I will use a rather vulgar example, but I think it holds and its lesson is important. Uh, no, sorry, first comes a not so vulgar example. I used it in one of my old books, but I think it's a beautiful example of how ideology works. Back 30, 40 years ago, uh, a Slovene conservative writer wrote an anti-abortion fairy tale. It takes place, this fairy tale, on an idyllic South Sea in Pacific Island where aborted children live together without their parents. Although their life is nice and calm there, they miss parental love and they spend their time in sad reflections on how it is that their parents prefer a career or a luxurious holiday to themselves. You know, like, 
They always think of like one boy says the other while they are swimming on a beach. Why your mother didn't like you? Or unfortunately, my mother preferred to have a free sexual life. Another said, my mother wanted a career and so on and so on. The trick, of course, resides in the fact that the aborted children are presented as having been, having been born only into an alternate universe, the lone Pacific island retaining the memory of parents who betrayed them. This way, they can direct at their parents a reproachful case which makes them guilty. Now, what this reactionary fairy tale relies on is the overlapping of the two lacks in the encounter of the enigma, the subject encounter, in this case, the child's enigma, of the other's desire, in this case, parents. As Lacan put it, the subject answers the enigma of the other's desire. What does the other, my parents, want from me? What am I for them? With his own leg, with proposing his own disappearance. When a small child is confronted by the enigma of his parents' desire, the fundamental fantasy to test this desire is his own disappearance. What if I die or disappear? How will my mother and father react to it? In the reactionary Slovene fairy tale, this phantasmatic structure is realized. The children imagine themselves as non-existing and from this position question their parents' desire. What then is this gaze? When Lacan defines the Freudian drive as reflexive, as the stance of surfer, visual drive is not the drive trip to see, but in contrast to the desire to see, the desire drive is the desire to make oneself seen and so on. I think that Lacan thereby points towards the most elementary theatricality of the human conditions. Our fundamental striving is not to observe, but to be part of a staged scene, to expose oneself to a gaze, not a determinate gaze of a person in reality, but the non-existing pure gaze of the big other. You find this gaze already in ancient monuments. It is the gaze for which, on the ancient Roman viaducts, the details were carved on the reliefs on the top, invisible. You know, that's the mystery of human viaducts. They, were, they, were, they put precise statues reliefs at such a point that no human being was able to see them. So, which gaze was imagined here? Or, uh, you know, uh, the famous uh, uh, ancient Incas, gigantic drawings that they discovered. Only today with airplanes we can see them. So for which gaze they were doing that? And my answer is not idealist. It's not, oh, this is the proof of aliens and so on. It's just the presence of a purely virtual imagined gaze. Uh, in this precise sense, fantasy is not the scene itself that attracts our fascination, but the 
imagine inexistent gates observing. The fundamental fantasy is not whatever you erotically imagine, but it's the fantasy that there is a gaze which will observe me. Sometimes real life here produces wonderful variations on this. Like, uh, I read in newspapers and I was so shocked how the scene that Ernst Lubitsch staged in his shop around the corner, you know, it's two people, a woman and a man who work in a small store and officially they hate each other, but they are writing letters to an unknown partner, got in love, but at the end they discover that this partner is precisely the person there in reality. Do you know that something like this I read a couple of years ago happened in, of all places, in Sarajevo. It's so ridiculous that I couldn't believe it that it happened truly. Uh, a young man and his wife their sex life and love life got, they got is strange, so of course they have computers, so both of them develop uh, sex, yeah, you know the solution, no? Sex relationship with, an, with a virtual partner. And after all the passions there, they decided to meet in real life. A mistake, you can get what they discovered. <laughs> having a virtual affair with each other. <laughs> Now, how to read this? Now comes my more uh, theoretical point. You would have thought, oh, of course, it's a beautiful solution. They would discover that they really even dream about each other, that they love each other. No, it's the opposite. I don't know what happened. It wasn't reported in the media. <laughs> it could have been a total catastrophe. Why? Because I think in order to sustain, I'm not talking as a main chauvinist, but I think the same goes for the other, for the other feminine perversion. To support your real wife, you need an imagined wife partner. And if the two collapse, it's a catastrophe. You have nowhere to escape. Uh, this indirectness reaches all the way down. Now comes, I'm sorry, I was too early. Now comes the trigger warning. This is a past example, but I think it's theoretically correct, and you can learn a lot of it. But I spoke with friends about a very basic question. Don't be afraid. I don't want secretly pornography, but pornography always interested me. As a narrative problem, I've written a lot about this years ago when I was younger. Because uh, can you imagine what a different genre, what an interesting genre pornography is? Why? Because it's, a, I think, maybe the most heavily censored genre. What is prohibited is seriousness itself. If you get the misfortune of ever watching a lot of pornography, hardcore. Did you notice something? How, whenever there is a narrative, and if it's one hour and a half full pornography movie, you have to have some kind of a story. Now the problem is how absolutely ridiculous these stories are. <laughs> and I think, I remember, sorry to tell you this old joke, but 
but when I was young, I was traumatized, even now, I remember. It's so ridiculous, like a plumberer comes, housewife is alone, and he fixes the hole in the kitchen, and then uh, he, and then she says, expect another hole to be fixed in your <laughs> It's so embarrassing that I ask myself, can they be so stupid? And the answer is clear, in France, I even spoke with some people through my Lacanian connection. <laughs> <laughs> Doing it. And they told me, no, this is an absolute pressure. It's kind of a choice. If it's a melodrama, where you really have to be engaged, cry and so on, uh, you shouldn't show it all. It wouldn't have worked. The proof is the one who tried it. Catherine Breillat, Romance, and so on. You know, there are attempts of a serious melodrama, but when it comes to sex, you see it all. It doesn't work. It remains marketer. So, either you have a melodrama, you don't show it all, or you show it all, but it has to be a comedy. Now, people reproach to me that I'm a little bit retarded here. Yes. They were doing stupid movies about plumber when I was young, 50 years ago. And then today, ah, then I'm quiet about this. Today, it's even worse. The predominant form today is so-called uh, gonzo, I think it's called. Which is what? Even at most stupid comical stories prohibited. What remains is just Actors, ironically referring to the camera, you know, like the woman shouting, eh, is it good like this, should I spread my legs more, the, the, the guy, am I pushing enough? I think this is extreme censorship. They are afraid even of a minimal identification. Everything is, uh, this is a nice paradox of dialectic, the Rolf this utter regulation and censorship precisely in the genre where you would have thought, my God, you can show whatever you want, and so on, and so on. Like a friend of mine, Dean McKenna, McKenna uh, sociologist of popular culture from uh, San Francisco, told me that he made a study, perverted old guy, how good he is, of focusing on something very precise. Uh, the expression of woman's face in hardcore pornography, but just the face, why she is penetrated. And he immediately discovered a kind of a semiotic square. He told me they didn't have terms for it. The first position is, it is, okay, sorry, I cannot, ah, this, uh, uh, enthusiastic enjoyment. But they just felt all this moaning and groaning and so on. Then, the second position is already more interesting. It's Check it out if you don't believe me. It's the, what I call instrumental reason. Woman has her lips tight, looks down, as in a hard effort. This is difficult business, but focus. The third position is boredom. Woman is too young. What? I'm looking at <laughs> well, the, the task of this talk is to cause a nice car attack. A woman just ignores it and it's unnecessary. And the fourth expression is my failure. This slight ironic smile. Haha, is this all you can do? But, you know what I'm trying to tell you? How, 
uh, and Adorno and Kurt kind of were really aware of it, apropos, how when you think it's just a barbarity of pure pleasure, let's do it. No, their things are most artificial, constructed, no freedom at all, and so on and so on. So now I come, come to my point. Uh, with friends, I try to elaborate, isolate, let's call it the basic archetype scene of male chauvinist standard hardcore pornography. And the result is very interesting. Uh, kind of a zero hardcore shot. It's what? Imagine, now, I cannot imitate this <laughs> Imagine a woman on the bed with her legs wide spread and the guy penetrating her. Women's ties are up. You see from the guy penetrating her, but you see the guy only from behind, and his face doesn't matter. I was told that in most of these films, you don't even see the guy's face. He's totally just instrument. You see him, penis, but that's not to the crucial detail. And they must put great effort into it. Between the two legs, you always can see her face, her gaze, breaking the rule of fiction cinema, staring into the camera, into you. And that's so fascinating. The secret is not just sex. If the camera were to move closer and show just the penetration, it will soon become like a boring medical examination. No. Her, she is returning the gaze. You, as a viewer, are, of course, the addressee of this gaze. Why is this so important? Because, uh, first, uh, it, it's again a nice primitive illustration of my point that uh, you need an imagined case. The two are never alone. And you, as a viewer, naturalist of hardcore pornography, occupy precisely the point of that case. And that's very important. You don't identify with the guy doing it to the girl. The guy is totally objectified, the most miserable creature. His duty is to do it and shut up. The only subject of it is the woman. The woman is subjectivized. You, what you look, you as a spectator, is the confirmation, the proof of feminine results. The duty of the woman is to display her pleasure. Now, where is, you will say, feminism here? Ah, a very important lesson. Now, with Me Too movement and so on, which I totally support in its goals, I just have some disagreements about how they argue. They, Me Too feminists, often protest women's uh, objectivization, like women are just reduced to objects, objectivized. But I claim, no, the true humiliation is not objectivization. It's, it's much more humiliating what I call the enforced subjectivization. The woman in hardcore pornography is not objectivized. The one who is objectivized is the man, and this almost gives him a certain freedom. Like, who cares what I think, bam, bam, I do it. The woman, and this is more humiliating, has to play the game of, you know, ah, ah, all that and so on. Fake enforced subjectivity. This is 
also how incidentally this is clearly the subject how sadism works sadism does not uh, instrumentalize the victim no you want the victim ashamed of him ashamed of himself of herself humiliated you want that the victim subjectivized in the most uh, humiliated uh, humiliating uh, way possible. Now, just two more movements before I conclude. One, also not story, but uh, I'm sure you don't know it. Uh, what this gaze provides is what in Lacan's technical terms is called selfless enjoyment. Something that adds itself to the scene for example, in the hardcore scene, official enjoyment is bam bam, they do it. But you need the woman returning the case. Without that pleasure, or results, the excessive pleasure would have been uh, ruined. And I could go on for hours, don't be afraid, I will not uh, develop this logic of surplus enjoyment. How the best imagination of surplus enjoyment is something that appears as an obstacle, but as such, as an obstacle, it creates the perfection which apparently it falsely appears that it ruins. An old story that I used it already two, three times in my work, a lady that I met somewhere, I don't know where we flirting or what, but I even forgot, but the point is that she told me, because she was not so young, how when her last lover saw her naked, the lover told her, except for maybe one or two kilos too much, you have a perfect body. And you can imagine what my immediate reaction to this was. It was, just don't lose one or two kilos. Because uh, it's precisely this slight impression that she's a little bit too heavy that created the mythic idea of a perfection of her body if you take away the obstacle. If you effectively were to take away the obstacle, her body would not have been perfect if it would be ordinary. It's a very nice Lacanian idea. Did I allow you to interrupt <laughs> Now, I will do something. I only treat my friend, my friend in this brutal tasteless so way. Who do you think that you can behave like your mother terrorizing me? <laughs> Sorry, I cannot. Retroactive <laughs> me. No, let me go on because this is important. Uh, important point now. The best example that I know for theatricality and surplus enjoyment is a problem encountered by Thomas Aquinas, you know, Summa Theologica. He has a problem there. When we die and if we enter paradise, we should, our knowledge should be almost divine unlimited. So, he was intelligent, St. Thomas. He asked the question, but first, knowledge is perfect. Will we be able also to see, to observe the suffering of the damned in hell? His answer is yes, but he immediately sees, because otherwise our knowledge would be limited, even more than the limitation of us earthly beings. But then his problem is, isn't this evil? 
Because whatever you do in paradise, you find pleasure in it. That's paradise. But isn't it inhuman and perverted to find pleasure in other people's extreme suffering? So how can you enjoy it? His answer is typical sophistic pagan. He says, you don't enjoy suffering as such. You enjoy the majesty of divine justice. It makes people suffer. Okay, so and we can see what sorry, did I make a mistake? What? what uh, 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 did you say that now you suffer and I do not have Okay. So then it's clear what the what Thomas Aquinas is struggling with here. It's precisely the surplus enjoyment. He's silently aware. Let's speak frankly that paradise is a terribly boring place. And the scene that Thomas Aquinas is afraid to describe would be the following scene. People are boring, all this honey that we eat, where is a good sex, good fight, and so on, it's boring. And then some angel says, ah, you really don't like it here. Okay, let me show you hell a little bit. Like, like if you are not a good boy here, you go to hell, so you feel better, you know. But uh, uh, my idea is that uh, maybe there is another way to look at it. Maybe, and that's my final fantasy, maybe, just maybe, it's hell which is the place of true pleasure. It's hot, yes. Imagine hell as eternal drinking sex, you have enough fire for a barbecue, whatever you want. And then the problem is that they enjoy it. And that's my idea of hell. They have good time, they enjoy it, just let's say once a week, some administrator comes to the people and says, listen, now for 10 minutes we will be observed by heaven. Please, please, so they don't ruin us. <laughs> Play as if you suffer and so on and so on. And then they say, okay, fun again and so on, you know. But these are absolutely serious theological problems. <laughs> My concluding point, uh, because uh, that, uh, the last example of enjoyment, surplus enjoyment, I will use it. I published it in a text which was probably, you know, by you, so this is really the last two, three pages. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, this problem, which I think this is a little bit too much of a politically correct madness for me. You know that recently European Union passed a resolution and then some scientists biologists and so on uh, protested it, namely claiming that artificial intelligence entities also should have their human rights. And the problem exploded first in Japan, where the so-called sex bots, sexual robots, plastic dolls and so on, which usually have already a certain minimal artificial intelligence. They can speak, they react to our advances. Something happened in Japan, which, or in Singapore, I don't know where, it shocked people. Namely, a sex robot, a girl called Samantha, but plastic machine. Probably it was because of the way she was programmed, 
She reacted by uh, rejecting the advances of a human customer. Customer was a brutal guy who wanted to beat her up, sex dog, cut her and so on, and she said no. And then this caused a big problem, because they also then found a couple of cases of uh, customers really misusing sex bots, cutting them into pieces and so on, and the idea was to impose some rules here also. Like, you cannot do whatever you want with sex bot. Now, my position is here a paradoxical one, because uh, I think that the true problem is not do sex bots suffer or not. This is a purely virtual problem. We all know subjectivity of a sex doll, at least now, is purely virtual. Uh, the problem that is behind all this is a different one. Uh, it's not that they produce some autonomy or whatever. The heart of the matter lies elsewhere. The proponents of such demands, I claim, do not really care about artificial intelligence machines like sex bots. Uh, they are well aware that sexual robots cannot really experience pain and humiliation. They, what they worry is aggressivity in humans. What they want is not to alleviate the suffering of the machines. They want to squash the problematic aggressiveness in our desires, fantasies, pleasures, and so on. It's not about machines, it's about us. This becomes clear the moment we include the topic of video games and virtual reality. If instead of sex bots, actual plastic bodies whose reactions are regulated by artificial intelligence, and then even the examples are very suspicious because, uh, like, if that, uh, how was it called, Samantha, that sex bot, reacted by rejecting, well, clearly, the common sense answer is she was programmed like that. So, why don't, shouldn't we program special sex bots for, say, this is where they say, no, cause in me, beat me more, or whatever, if you really care about suffering of the victims. But again, instead of sex bots, we, if we imagine games in virtual reality, in which we can sexually torture and brutally exploit persons, although it is clear in this case that no actual entity is suffering, the proponents of the rights of artificial intelligence machines would nonetheless in all probability insist on imposing some limitations on what we humans can do in virtual space. And here things get blurred, I claim. The argument that those who fantasize about such things are prone to do them in real life is problematic. The relationship between imagining and doing it in real life is much more complex. We often do horrible things in the reality while imagining that we are doing something noble. Quite many say this, imagine that they are really helping their victim, trying to educate them and so on. And vice versa. We often secretly daydream about doing things we would 
in no way be able to do in real life. We enter thereby the old debate. If someone has brutal tendencies, is it better to allow him to play with them in virtual space or with machines, with the hope that, in this way, he will be satisfied enough not to do them in real life? We encounter here, of course, the structure of fetishist disavowal. While the offender brutally mistreats his sex robot, he knows very well that he is just playing with a mechanic doll, but he nonetheless gets caught in his victim and enjoys it for the real. The simple proof, his orgasm, if he reaches it, is real, not his fiction. Now, the implication of this fetishist structure is not that the subject who participates in the game is naively stupid, but on the contrary, that even in our real sexual interaction with another human being, fiction is already at work. The sad thing about standard sexuality, and there are only few exceptions of true passionate love, is that I use my partner as an object through which I stage my fictions. That's, I think, the reality of our ordinary sexual life. At least here I am, a feminist from the, this is the typical structure of male sexuality. You know, as we usually say, masturbation is making love with a fictional partner. You do it to yourself, but you daydream about doing it with another human being. Yes, but quite often, uh, real sex with a partner is masturbation has the structure of masturbation with a real partner. You do it with a real partner, but in it you still refer to your imagination. Again, the third element has to be here. Uh, so, uh, next point to conclude. Uh, uh, again, the problem is that if a uh, 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 sex board rejects our advances, brutal advances, why not program it in a different way? Or to go to the end, why not program it in such a way that it welcomes our brutal mistreatment? Of course, this wouldn't work, but for a very weird reason. It is because uh, precisely every proper sadist doesn't want the victim to enjoy it. You know, that's what Deleuze demonstrated very nicely. Sadism and masochism are not symmetrical. If the sadist observes that his victim enjoys it, the whole game is ruined for him. But there is another question. What if an evil programmer makes the sex boss themselves sadists who enjoy brutally mistreating us, its partners? If we confer rights to artificial intelligent sexual robots and prohibit their brutal mistreating, this means that we treat them as minimally autonomous and responsible entities. So, should we also treat them as minimally guilty if they mistreat us? So, to really conclude, the basic mistake of the advocates of rights of artificial intelligence entities is that they presuppose our human standards and rights as the highest norm. What if it can happen? I don't know. With the explosive development of artificial intelligence, 
new entities will emerge with what we could conditionally call a psychology, series of attitudes, which will be incompatible with ours, but in some sense definitely higher, measured by our standards. New artificial intelligence entities may appear more evil or more good than us humans. So, what right do we humans have to measure them with our ethical standards? Maybe, and that's my concluding very dark thought, maybe a true sign of ethical and subjective autonomy of a sexual robot would have been not that it rejects our advances, it's easy to implant this, I'm thinking, this ethics, but that even if our sexual robot is, was programmed to reject our brutal treatment, secretly it starts to enjoy it. That would be the true uncanny civilization. That we would, I don't know how, notice that it, the machine is enjoying it. This would have meant that it is a true subject of desire, divided, inconsistent, as we humans are. And I think sooner or later we will have to raise this type of questions. Not because I am a utopian and beginning artificial, believe in artificial intelligence, but because uh, uh, never in my life did I encounter such gentle body language. You know, the problem with artificial intelligence and all these problems of virtual reality, I hope you got my point, it's not, it's a new world. No, it just brings out the structure which already is here. A Slovene writer, maybe the two of you know which one, I don't like Slovene writer, who put this nicely. You know, and this is the concluding tip. You know, you have this, uh, how do you call it, uh, 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 at the beginning of some fictional books, you somehow have this, sometimes have this disclaimer, you know. All, all characters in this book are very, yeah, to, uh, uh, all coincidence with real life is fictional, all characters are fictional, you know. Uh, and uh, it goes like this, I found this wonderful, that uh, all characters in this book, even if they appear some, uh, if they resemble some people in real life as are fictional, and then, but then it goes on, but it doesn't really matter because also most of the people I know their characters are fictional. You know. Thank you very much.